Before we get started, I'd just like to tell you about some recent changes we've made to our Patreon. We now have a Discord server that's exclusive for our Level Up and Queenship members. So if you'd like to chat directly with the hosts of this podcast and make friends with other like-minded queens, sign up for our Patreon and select either the Level Up or Queenship tier. As always, Patreon members have access to weekly bonus content on Fridays. Thanks for listening, queens, and on to the show. Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Ro. And this is Savannah. And today we have a much-requested guest by the name of Natalie Liu. Hi. Natalie, I just remember coming across your blog, Baggage Reclaim, probably, I'm trying to think like 10 years ago. I know that you were like just one of the very first people that claimed, you know, your own space in uh, the sex and dating sphere and specifically talking about creating boundaries, starting to parse out and navigate the more complex parts of emotional, emotional engagement with the opposite sex. So I think I just kind of wanted to start off by asking what really just inspired you to create this blog. I know you've talked, you've probably already talked about this and you have, uh, have like a little blurb on your website, but for people um, who are not familiar and may not have followed your blog this entire time, can you describe that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I have been blogging for just over 17 years. So since June, 2004, and I started off with a personal blog which was called um, Tired of Men and Other Things That Drive a 20-something Around the Twist. And it was... (laughs) (laughs) Relatable. How apt. And it was really... uh, That started from I went on a date. It was early June 2004. And I remember coming home and being like, geez, like, what is up with you? You say that you want to go out with a nice guy. And then when you do go out with one, you're bored to tears by them. You like, you're always going out with the more exciting, but annoying guy type of thing. And I had read an article about blogging in the Observer newspaper, which is part of the Guardian. And it was in like April, 2004. And I literally cut the article out. It was on the front page. And I remembered it at four o'clock in the morning when I had bubble guts because the guy had taken me on a cheap date, like a really dodgy Mexican place. And I had an upset stomach in the middle of the night. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I had plenty of time to think. And, um, I just, for some reason, the article sort of popped into my mind. And 10 minutes later, I had a personal blog as I said, called Tired of Men. And I really used that, not because I was there sitting there man bashing, but I was, I I wanted to talk about my frustration with myself and with relationships. And I spent over a year telling stories about, you know, commuting in London and, you know, being involved with a guy who had a girlfriend and strange guys that chatted me up and all the rest. And it was when I had uh, really a bit of an awakening and an epiphany sort of a year later I'd been seeing a guy for about, and I say seeing in the loosest possible terms, seeing a guy for about five months. And then he was like, oh, I just had a slip and fall. And remember that I don't want to be in a relationship. I'm not ready for a relationship yet. And um, I remember going onto that blog and talking out loud about my frustrations and saying that I'd had this realization that every single relationship I was ever in was with an emotionally unavailable guy typically one that was still attached to the umbilical cord or the apron strings and who they all 
very, very hot at the beginning, chasing, chasing, chasing me down. And they liked me because, you know, they'd say I was ambitious and outgoing and attractive and sexy and blah, blah, blah. And then who would criticize me for that and play head games and all the rest. And in expressing this out loud and saying, you know, I have writing about myself for over a year has shown me that I have a problem. I used to think I was somebody who was into monogamy, but I'm realizing I have a problem. I am always with these kind of guys. It's like I've got a neon sign in my head and I thought I was weird. Like I did. I genuinely thought that there was something unlovable about me. So you can imagine my shock when I'm inundated with messages from people saying, you're talking about me. Like you're describing my life. When I talked about daddy issues, when I said, you know, I, I feel like this runs back to my daddy issues, my mommy issues. Cause I've gone out with every single, every guy is, has been a variation of my parents. And I think, um, some of the isolation that women feel in those emotions is, because prior to maybe the disposition of the internet, um, women were very much made to feel like it was their fault or that there was sort of an isolated. Absolutely. Uh, there's sort of an isolated uh, factor to what is what we now kind of know is sort of a pervasive attitude that's perpetuated by our overall culture and society, which does privilege men. And uh, I'd like to say supports a lot of their ability to exploit or isolate women or uh, put all their emotional baggage on women or project all of their negative behavior onto women and then use that as a justification to mistreat women. And if you didn't know that that was happening to other women and that a lot of the same things that were being said to you were being said to other women, you would think it was just a personal problem. But now having the bird's eye perspective, you can say, no, this is actually a pervasive cultural thing. A, a man. I mean, I just wanted to testify dance like here and all of this because it's like, <laughs> because actually that's exactly what it was. You know, I'm 44. I grew up in the Cosmopolitan, more magazine, just 17, you know, position of the fortnight. And when you looked at what was in books or what was on the magazine shelves. It was 50 ways to please your man. Every problem was put on some lingerie, sex them up, you know, uh, sweet talk them, whatever it might be. And none of it ever really spoke to my experiences. And I was somebody who was very used to blaming myself. You know, I've been practicing that since I was a kid. So it really parlayed very well into going out, you know, it, you know, with emotionally unavailable men. And realizing, oh, hold on a second, I thought I was weird, but all of these people are saying they're just like me. What's going on here? And about a month later in September 2005, I started baggage reclaim. And it was because in just those weeks alone, in between me having these realizations and talking out loud about what I was realizing, I wanted to create a, a space really where... I explored these themes in my own life and in other people's lives. And the idea was, is that if I could help at least one person avoid what I had been through, or I can help one person get out of a situation, then I felt like I was giving back in some way. Because, you know, me writing on the internet and sharing my stories and taking the piss out of myself and, you know, sharing actually the patterns and, and struggles that I and my family have been through has, uh, it's given me a lot. Like people have really supported me. You know, at the time when I had my epiphany, I had an immune system disease and it was suggestions from readers of my blog that helped me to find solutions to that when they were telling me I had to go on steroids for life or die type of thing. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to talk out loud 
on what I'm realizing about myself and, and see if that can help somebody out there. And so here I am like 16, just over 16 years on with baggage reclaim. That can be really powerful. It just takes one person to have the courage to stand up and be honest about their experience. And I think that's, um, that's a criticism we've, we've had of mainstream media as well is that they, I, first of all, I think half the time the letters that are being sent in are fake and just a prompt for (laughs) some of their uh, sex and dating writers to just like quote unquote show their expertise, which is often just, you know, some diploma mill certificate that's essentially meaningless, but also comes from, you know, specific ideological framework that can be very harmful um, ultimately to women. But I think, uh, like you with female dating strategy, there was sort of a, a meeting of minds and a, a, a lot of different women who have now seen each other and said, Hey, what's being reflected in our general culture and what's being pushed on us as far as values from even, even from so-called feminist media, is just not reflective of reality. And when we started to just be honest about these things, that's where the magic started to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that what I've realized is there's real power in I know it sometimes gets overused, but there is real power in authenticity and, and, and sharing our vulnerability, but not in like one of those unboundaried ways. Like you never catch me like online talking about something in this sort of, let me vomit it out at you. Um, like I, there's, I share in a, in a boundaried way, but I also, I, find it's really important for me to talk about the things that make us weird. The things that we're absolutely convinced that makes me a weirdo. It makes me unlovable. It makes me an outsider. It makes me abandonable, whatever it might be. Because the moment that you open up your mouth, other people go, oh my gosh, like that's me. Like, I feel like I also speak up for anybody who has actually felt like they've been abandoned. And there's a lot of us that feel that way. So I speak for as people who have felt that wound of abandonment, who have what we'd call the mommy issues or the daddy issues, who have less than perfect relationships with their family, who feel embarrassed about the fact that they've never had a good relationship or that they've only had one good relationship, who struggle with friendship, who sometimes cry themselves to sleep after getting home from work because it's like going into flipping warfare every day. And so I speak for this because at the end of the day, we give ourselves a hard time and we're like, oh my gosh, why don't I know this? And of course, we've been socialized and conditioned and not just by like, for instance, who we grew up around, but we've been bombarded with messages from the media through film, TV, books. It's, it's coming at us all the time about what it is to be a woman, relationships and all the rest. If we don't know what boundaries are, values, needs, self-care, feelings, it's because nobody talked to us about it. It's really good that you touched on boundaries, Natalie, because it's something that we try to instill in our followers at FDS is the importance of having boundaries. Because let's face it, you're right, like nobody teaches women especially how to have boundaries. And I feel like our boundaries are tested from the time we were born. We did an episode on like Disney princesses and how a lot of them have really broken and busted <laughs> boundaries. Um, and there's, there's never a prince in a Disney film. He's always a bum. But... <laughs> <laughs> they paint him as a prince because they want to sell you a romance or but really women they haven't been taught to have and to 
you know, enforce healthy boundaries that, that, that not only benefits, you know, them, but also makes them happy. Um, you know, which is the reason why many women, you know, seem to engage in behaviors that ultimately make them unhappy and don't serve them at all. Um, I mean, so that leads on quite nicely onto my second question, actually, is, you know, if we don't have a framework for setting and enforcing boundaries as you know, adult women or as, you know, young women, like how can we um, begin to to set and enforce boundaries you in know, our personal uh, lives? Boundaries are a part of everything. And so as a society, we've actually been taught that no is a dirty word. And also no has become synonymous with boundaries as if to say that's what everything rises and falls on is is no. But boundaries are as much about what you say yes to as they are about what you say no to. And so boundaries are really about like actually the expression of your needs and your desires and your expectations and your feelings and your opinions. And it's the more honest and authentic you are about those, especially in those times where it's oh so tempting not to be, is the better boundaries you have. But the problem is, is that we have been taught that no is a dirty word, that no hurts feelings, that boundaries hurt feelings. And so... We think that the way to advance ourselves in life is to be whatever other people want us to be, to avoid conflict and criticism, to be like, oh, I know, I'm going to use like my lack of boundaries as a currency. And then because I've basically let you do whatever you want to me, you're then going to feel as if you owe me a relationship. And so now we're in the Olympics of how much have I suffered and what does that entitle me to in a relationship? I feel personally (laughs) attacked right now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that is, it's so true, but it's, it's also because we just don't have the language for an alternative, right? One of the most frustrating parts of, um, you know, my experience, I think, uh, in the dating space is just, or just growing up female is like having an instinct that something was wrong, that I wanted to put a boundary, but I didn't have the language to articulate why and where. Right. And that is to me in some ways feels like that's the next frontier of what really like feminism or, and then if you're specifically in the sex and dating space, like uh, navigating the sex and dating space is because, um, so often because we don't have any type of valid language or any type of language to describe why something makes us uncomfortable or why we shouldn't do it, then women don't have any tools to push back against narratives that are just sometimes just created out of thin air by, by men. Right. And sometimes it's individual men, but that sometimes it's like institutions, right. It could be academia. It could be, uh, media. It could be all, all of these structures, which um, a lot of times just kind of push out these pop psych ideas or Evo psych ideas. It gets disseminated into our culture. And then women just feel like they don't even have the tools to fight back when something, although it, it may be laid out kind of logically, intuitively feels incorrect to us. Yeah. I think that both men and women are socialized and conditioned to distrust their feelings. But the world is oriented towards men, so it privileges men anyway, regardless of whether you trust or distrust your feelings anyway in the first place. As women, we are told to be meek and mild and sweet and kind and giving and helpful and accommodating. Very different language to what is is said to, bo- to, to boys and then men. And 
what happens then is that in situations where we need to actually trust our instincts, we need to trust our intuition, sometimes actually just need to pay attention to the information that's right in front of us, we then go, oh, that's not very nice what I'm feeling. That's not very nice what I'm seeing. Let me gaslight myself and shut that all down and pretend that it's something other than that. And some of the worst things that I've experienced, the things that I struggle with the most is when I knew with every fiber of my being that something was wrong, that I needed to say no. And I went ahead anyway, or I left it almost until the last possible moment before I let the instincts fully kick in. And I was like, no, I mean, I can remember being, I just turned 18 and I was brought up in Dublin and Ireland. And I came over to London for my 18th birthday. It was like a little while after that. And it was like this in that summer. So it must've been like the summer of, I don't even know when I would have turned 18, summer of 95. Anyway, I'm here in London and not the time of mobile phones. And I had, I don't know, I couldn't remember where to meet my friend and, and I didn't have a mobile phone and I didn't know how to get in contact with them. This guy approaches me by Marble Arch and obviously can tell that I am a lost and vulnerable woman. And they, you know, bombarding me with chat, talking, 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 and they're walking with me and they're like, oh, you can come to my place and make a phone call. And in my head, I'm going, I'm flipping, flipping telephone boxes around here. This is England, like red telephone boxes all over the gaff. Like, why would I need to go to this guy's place? But politeness has sometimes been close to being the death of me where I want to be polite and non-confrontational. And there's almost this fake naivety. Like I pretend like I don't know what's going down. And so in my head, I'm computing this situation and I can feel my heart racing. And I feel like something is not quite right here. I think that this guy's pulling something and he's like, oh, you come to my place. And he's just rushing me. And we're at this, I don't know, like, you know, like those little blocks of flats where it's only like three levels or whatever. I got as far as the doorway of the flat. Okay. And he opens the door and I glance these three big beefy guys <laughs> In <gasps> I, I went, do you know what? I'm just going to go and I'll say it to you. And I legged it. And I mean, I can sprint. Like <laughs> I can still, I can actually still sprint pretty fast. I sprinted out of that place so fast. And I remember saying to myself, Natalie, why would you leave it until the absolute last possible freaking moment before you would finally acknowledge this is wrong. I don't like this. This feels wrong. I'm getting the freak out of here. And that's a metaphor for how a lot of things went down for me where I would sometimes, I'd be like the boiling frog, you know, like, you know, they, they, they use that, I think, as some sort of analogy about to-do lists, about how the frog literally doesn't know it's boiling to the last possible sec. That's, that was me. And those let, allowing me to access my instincts was something that took time because this has been shamed and conditioned out of us over the years. And so when we're sitting there beating ourselves up going, oh my God, like I put myself in that situation. Actually, your past, your training, the socializing, the conditioning, all those things that people have said to you about how you must be non-confrontational and, you know, be sweet and mean and don't make them feel bad. You know, we could be in a situation with somebody and let's just say, let's just say, let's just call it. We're in a situation with a guy. We're being on a date. We now want to go home. 
this person has a hard on and we feel that because the person's taken us out to dinner and we spent the evening with them and they now have a hard on, we feel guilty for not wanting to sleep with them. It's like, oh my gosh. They've created these social contracts that unfortunately, I don't know why, but uh, unfortunately there's not been enough pushback on or like collective um, pushback on, meaning not just from like an individual uh, person, meaning as a, as a person, you really obviously only have a responsibility for yourself and in that moment to try to uh, push back against that. But in our popular cultural, cultural narrative, those ideas get propagated, right? Even by so-called feminist media. And, and we've, we've been very much vocal in pointing that out. One of the common criticisms, criticisms of FDS is women being like, I don't feel comfortable going on a, a dinner date or if a man pays for you, you're nothing more than a, a sex worker or a prostitute. And I'm like, who, who created those narratives? And why did you just hook, line and sinker accept it? You know, you don't have to accept the things that men say, right? Like they're just saying things to advantage themselves. It's just them taking like a, a narrative tactical advantage. So it's, it's frustrating because I know, I know exactly the feeling you're talking about. I've been there many times myself and over time I've learned personal tools to navigate that and, and learning how to reassert my boundaries. But there is sort of like this, um, lingering frustration and anger with like the overarching messages that were disseminated to me. Um, you can maybe forgive like your parents' ignorance to a certain extent because your parents, you know, they're whoever they are, they, you know, they might not be like, you know, road scholars or doing, um, anything in in the sex and dating space or uh, ideological space. But when you start to see that often the main purveyors of this are other women, in addition to men, Mm -hmm. meaning like just so quick to adopt whatever narrative comes out and then put like constantly putting in this position where we're slipping and slipping and slipping away from creating healthy boundaries or honoring our instincts about situations. Yeah. I mean, you know, women, participate in patriarchy. And so what can happen is that I hear from a lot of women who get some of their most atrocious advice about what to do with themselves from other women. Yeah. And it is <laughs> so well-meaning <laughs> advice, yeah. but it is maybe you're being picky. Maybe they didn't mean whatever shady thing that it was in that way. And I appreciate that those same people who were given that advice have been socialized and conditioned. But we also have to acknowledge that there's a whole industry that is based on this whole us and them. And then there's this whole like real women and feminist women and others. And what happens is almost like weaponizing feminism. And so then it becomes, it's, it's not just guys who would have turned around and said, oh, well, you're nothing better than a sex worker if you allow a man to pay for you on a date. Because actually some of that's coming from women who are then putting out this ideology. And then it becomes like, oh my God, now I have to feel shame about somebody paying for me on a date. First of all, no, we do not. Like what kind of ho- hokey stuff yes, is this. And, I, and the thing is, is that we're constantly on this back foot because what happens is it's just another variation of rules. And I hear from people all the time, actually both men and women who are like, okay, so how should this go? What should be the time frame? When should you have sex? When should you do this? And I'm like, may hold up a second here. What you basically want me to do is give you a relationship in a box or a blueprint that says, do this on day one, do this on day seven, do this on this and this and this, and then boom, at the other end of it, it will spit out a relationship. So 
people are like, well, I don't understand. I waited three months to have sex and it still didn't work out. And the thing is, these rules do not work because a rule that works for some is the same rule that doesn't work for somebody else. There are people who slept with somebody on the first night and they're still together 20, 20 years later and happily so. And there are some people who slept with somebody on date one and then never saw them ever again. There are some people who waited until marriage and then they got divorced. And there are some people who waited until marriage and they're still together. But we use these rules as a way to control things, but also as a way to to make people compliant and teach them to feel ashamed. And so when you're, I don't know, setting up whatever your so-called feminist media is, and you're like, okay, so what's going to be my angle here? Oh, I know. I'll say, oh, you're basically being a sex worker, which is just another way of shaming sex workers, by the way. But you're a sex worker because you allowed somebody to pay for you on a date. And it's like, no, I just allowed somebody to pay for me on the date. If we go on another date, I'm probably going to be the one to pay then. Or you're setting feminism back. You know, you're, you don't believe in equality because you're, you have gendered expectations. But I think, I think for us, because I mean, we obviously like do have a, um, kind of a rules-based system or like at least a, a general rubric in which we discuss, um, how to go about dating and it's not necessarily like like meaning we we do have a thing called the the three month rule etc but i think the ma- the major difference in what's just become like general feminist media and then us is that like we're looking at it from like what would put you in the position to have the best outcome yes like a framework yeah framework and also self-preservation as well right? so if you know the likelihood of you of you sleeping with somebody on the first date who's only interested in sex is slightly higher. It's not a complete guarantee, but it's it's a lot higher than you know somebody who's willing to wait a bit longer or who's willing to work to your timeline as to when you're ready um, to have sex. Or it just gives you enough time to understand if he respects you or not, right? hundred uh, percent. Cause the thing is like what you're talking about is a framework and I'm very, very fond of frameworks and it's not about having hard and fast rules. It's actually about know yourself before you wreck yourself. Because at the end of the day, most of what I hear about in terms of dating and relationships and sex specifically is about what's actually taking place in those first few days, first few weeks, which of course sets the the stage, the tone for what comes next. And it's all about knowing your motivations and being intentional. Because if you want to have sex very early on, do you know what, right? Crack on, right? Go on with your bad self. But at the end of the day, if the reason why you're having sex early on is because you're trying to control things, because you think, well, if I don't have sex and they might not want to have another date with me, or maybe if I do have sex and they're going to think that I'm better than, that's not a reason to have sex with somebody. It's also about like, if you can't handle the emotional consequences of having sex, you have no business having sex early on. You'd be far better off chilling out, actually taking the time to get to know somebody. And if they don't want to continue hanging out with you because you haven't as such, as we used to say back in the day, put out yet, then so be it because it's never going to work anyway. If that's what the person is basing their decision to have a relationship with you on is whether you're willing to have sex yet. And if you're not comfortable having sex and it's not a mutual decision, one that you will be okay with, regardless of whether you continue to see each other or not, then you have no business having sex with that person. And 
I think there's a lot of fast intimacy or what I just call intensity that is going on in the early stages in those, basically in those first three months, as you say. And it's not about, oh, well, three months is the magic number. It's that actually, if you've got patterns where in the early stages of dating, you tend to move too fast on yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, sometimes even financially, you'd be amazed what people get up to in these, in the early stages of dating, then deliberately slowing yourself down, forcing yourself to be aware of what you're doing and being present to what's going on rather than introducing a whole load of stuff that's only going to trigger you anyway, can as you say, be a game changer. So, so the, ch- the change for me, at least, because I remember hearing advice and actually reading your blog to that, uh, reading your blog and um, hearing a lot of advice to that, to that effect, meaning, okay, if you know that you get emotionally attached too quickly, then uh, you shouldn't have sex early, et cetera, et cetera. And the biggest problem I found for myself was that it really just, there were so many different circumstances for which that may or may not be true. Meaning like there are some guys I might've had sex with fairly early on. I was sort of indifferent. Um, and there's other men who I had sex with later on and I was more, um, like attached to, but, uh, to be like the big difference and like how I started to think about it, um, not just from the perspective of like, okay, self-awareness and whether or not I can do this, but essentially like what are actually the risks versus the rewards here as far as, um, what's going to most benefit me in both the short and the long term versus like the immediate gratification, right? Cause the immediate gratification is obviously like the sex. And then also, um, even ha- not having a clue how to bet for a, a good sexual partner. Cause like sometimes it's just a very unpleasant surprise. <laughs> like if you're going <laughs> to choose to have sex with a guy because you think everything else is great and then you get to the sex and it's either terrible or this guy <laughs> is just not uh, the type of partner that can be reciprocal in the way you want, even if he does have like all the right tools per se. So I guess that's like my expansion on what you're saying is like, I, I always wonder um, how much of an individualistic approach is appropriate. And then where do we find the balance um, when we're talking about cultural pushback, because some of the reason why women have sex uh, early against their instinct is not just because they're horny, but because there's become this cultural push towards the idea that, oh, sex should happen by the third date or that being able to have sex without emotional attachment is some kind of feminist virtue that you should strive to be how uh, a lot of men are, right? That a lot of men can have sex early without emotional tra- attachment. But to me, that's just completely divor- divorced from our clear differences in biology. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's divorced from reality. I mean, believe me, I've heard from plenty of guys as well who struggle, you know, in those sort of uh, early stages. It, and, you know, it reminds me, I think it's either episode two or episode three of season one of Sex in the City, where it's like trying to have sex like men and realizing, oh, hold on a second. Like, why am I trying to pretend that I'm a robot, you know, type of thing. And I like what you said about like how much of this is individualistic. But of course, like, This goes back to, we want ideally to have a blueprint and be like, okay, well, just follow these steps and do these things. But actually what we have to pay attention to is our boundaries and our values. And then it's like, who are we? Because when we understand ourselves and we do so without shame, then we can make very different decisions about sex. Because for instance, yeah, okay, there are some people who it's not necessarily that they're a robot, but that they can actually keep a fairly level head if sex comes into the equation fairly early on. 
And if you understand that about yourself and you're truly in an honest place with yourself, then that's fine. But I think that what happens a lot in the, in the early stages, and this is where the individualistic aspect comes in, is that as you say, like, you, you know, you almost have the guardrail of understanding your framework, but it is also about being in tune with yourself. So noticing the feelings that are coming up and where you suddenly get this urge to be like, oh, maybe I should sleep with them right now, or maybe I should text, or, you know, maybe I should text with them all day long, or maybe I should do this. And it's paying attention to what's coming up for you that helps you to guide your sort of actions and intentions. And Something actually that I noticed around the sex thing, and this speaks really to the cultural aspect of it as well, is that when I was talking to women who were having sex relatively early on, and some, yeah, were like, well, you know, I'm just somebody who likes to have sex early on, and I need to know about the sexual chemistry, and I was horny or whatever. Great, crack on. But I would hear from them, and then I would also hear from some, and there had basically been some sort of anxiety about something going on behind the scenes. But then what was happening is that they were having sex because once they had, they felt as if they were entitled to then finally voice the anxiety that was there before they had sex. Or they felt like that they were now entitled to be like, actually... I want us to be exclusive or I want us to be this. Oh no, it's done it backwards. Yeah, this goes on a lot. And I say to people, well, hold on a second. If you had that anxiety or those questions, why would you try to use sex to solve that? Yeah, that's our experience as well. So that's interesting to, to hear you say that because that's been a lot of our criticism of the of the people who blog in the sex and dating space. Um, we have some we have some names in our shit list of like particular people that have been like pushing the like have sex right as soon as you guys you know you're sexually compatible and us being basically being like. We think a lot of that is a persona that they're putting on rather than reality. They're trying to project the image of an empowered, sexually in control feminist person, but actually crumbling. <laughs> we just, when they're not, we, yeah, we're, they're not. We just did an episode a couple of uh, weeks ago on about this writer at Jezebel named Tracy Clark Flory. And she did like a, an article kind of dragging, uh, FDS, but. In her own personal history, she'd written a book where she talked about how she was talking about sex and dating, dating and the virtues of hookup culture, but she'd never had an orgasm with any of the guys she had sex with until like the last guy for like years. And I was just like, this feels like such a massive, massive betrayal from other women like that to watch them like be in basically denial uh, antagonize other women who quote unquote don't have sex like them or have sex early or can't have sex early. And then them like saying, I'm doing this because I want to have sex and I don't want to think about it. But then them not being honest about where the consequences have come in or like looking at it from a comprehensive picture of like, was it actually worth it? Well, the fact that they're not even enjoying it. Yeah. Like so many women now on forums on the, well, you know, it's like, right, you know, like, but rightfully said, like the internet is a great place to find like-minded people. But there are so many women finally saying, actually, I think, uh, you know, like casual sex is just a complete shit show for me. Like there was a thread on Reddit saying, how many times have you orgasmed with a man? And the numbers were abysmally low. <laughs> And, and this is, and this is from the same place that is very, it touts off a sex positive, you know, you know, pro pornography, like have all the sex that you want. But the same women on that forum are admitting that they don't orgasm often during sex. It is tough to watch the collective 
delusion. The mass denial. <laughs> yeah. Collective amount of denialism. I mean, it, it. Collective gaslighting. We're in the emperor's new, what is it? The emperor has no clothes on. And everybody's going, oh, nobody wants to say the emperor's naked. Like, we're all just trying to pretend that the emperor's still got clothes on when the emperor's there riding along naked down the street. But this is, this is the world that we live in. This great pretense. And it's like, mate, look, I'm not saying that you can't write about sex if, if, uh, you're like not having orgasms or you're not hooking up, but there's a lack of authenticity there. And I think as well that women, are undoubtedly, it's literally based on even just how we're socialized and conditioned. We are more likely to be looking for advice and guidance on how to fix ourselves and how to understand relationships and fix our relationships. And so there's a responsibility that comes with that. And when you're then peddling yourself as whatever, and then it turns out as a whole other thing going on, people feel fooled by that. They feel hoodwinked because when they themselves are repeating the same lifestyle and having the same experience as her, but not knowing that she's not having any orgasms either, they're sitting there going, what's wrong with me? Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, that's been the, if people don't understand some of the, the frustration that came from the subreddit as far as like just hitting back at liberal feminist media. It's because like now you have maybe two generations of women between millennials and Gen Z who were raised in like the quote unquote sex posse culture. And it's just in, increasingly become women who are basically lying, getting media microphones, <laughs> like talking about how sexually empowered they are. And then uh, <laughs> some of them, I honestly, we, I doubt the authenticity of most of them, to be honest, at this point. I think most of what's going on is exactly what you're saying. And then a lot of times they hit their mid thirties and then they start writing like their memoirs or doing like an assessment and then saying the exact same shit <laughs> that we're saying now. So the, the hoodwinkingness is, is part of the, I think the backlash that FDS has come to embody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I, for some reason remembered, I watched, um, the Love is Blind reunion. Ah, what'd you think of it? <laughs> it, it was messy. Yeah. I, felt, I felt like it focused way too much on um, Elsie. Um, it's like the Elsie show. Um, but what was interesting is when Amber, I think it is, is having that sort of quite tense discussion, I think, with Elsie about, wasn't she involved with Mark or something like that? And every answer was, I'm married we're married. I'm married. We're married. And it, what the reason why I thought of that when you guys were talking was because I think that there is this real, like you're doing being a woman wrong type of thing going on yeah, and portraying these sort of very idealistic notions of, of womanhood and how to do it. And then having a whole other thing going on behind the scenes and feeling like, I mean, how, how are we advancing each other and supporting each other by literally taking our own position and then being like, okay, and now I'm going to use it to shame you. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. At the end of the day, I do think that the whole, I've talked a lot about casual relationships and my thing with it is we can do whatever we want relationship wise, obviously within, you know, legal bounds, but if you can't be casual about your casual relationship, then it's not really a casual relationship. Yeah. And humans literally cannot cope with being treated casually, right? We do not like to be treated as if I can take you or leave you, you know, little or no care. 
We can't cope with it. I can remember reading that article, actually. Um, and it was such an epiphany because it's so true. I find that even, you know, guys who are, you know, supposedly, um, you know, casual partners who don't want you as a girlfriend, they get very possessive over you. Like, they don't like it when you're not available when they are or when you're checking out other guys or when you even talk about other guys. They don't like it at all. And for them, but then I was, I was so confused until I read your article that actually, um, the term like, casual relationship is a complete misnomer because like nobody wants to be treated casually we all want to feel like we matter to people yeah absolutely also and i was talking about this with with a friend recently and i have long had this theory even before i started like writing online so because of how we are socialized and conditioned there's a very very interesting thing taking place between uh, men and women in these heteronormative uh, relationships where a guy wants to sleep around. Uh, I, my friend said that they're now in San Francisco. Guys are putting on their profile a term saying that they're ethically non-monogamous, which I was like cracking up laughing. <laughs> I was like howling when she told me this. But the, the the guy wants to like say, you know, they're sleeping around or whatever else, right? But when you look at who the guy wants to be sleeping around with, they want to be sleeping around with women that want a relationship with them. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is because their ego cannot cope with the idea of actually going out with somebody who would only want them for sex and wouldn't give a hoot about them anyway. So what they actually want is to go out with women who are like, but why can't we just be, why can't it just be me and you? Why can't it just be us being monogamous? They like the feeling of having somebody who wants to have a relationship with them. And you know, it also goes back to this sort of slut shaming thing as well, where it's like, oh, I do want to sleep around and I want to be a hoe myself, but I don't want to sleep with somebody who I might call a hoe myself. So I need to be with somebody who is like desperate to have a relationship with me. And that's just messed up. I've often said that men do what they want and then work out the narrative and justification for it later. (laughs) So often when I hear these like new, but these like new sexual buzzwords or like these new um, concepts that are coming out, I'm like, okay, so basically a man has some shit he wants to do and he's trying to create like a framework in which he's not a complete tool bag right <laughs> so, perfect 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 yeah. description perfect description and you know the friend who's going out with this so-called ethically non-monogamous person right like i said well hold on a second they didn't tell you that they were sleeping around you practically had to shine a torch in their face to get that information out of them. If they're ethically non-monogamous, they would have told you that up front so that you are allowed to make an emotionally responsible decision about what you want to do next. So when they're going, they're, they're, what are they saying? Something like, oh, you know, I, I you know I'm seeing other people, you know, like I just want to like keep this loose. And she said, I know you're seeing other people because I, when I came round, like she had a date with him, Sunday night date, there was like a condom in the bin from the night before. Oh, FDS rescue mission, Ro. FDS rescue mission. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh, hell, I could not believe what I was. And you know, she turns around and says, yeah, I actually saw the condom in, well, actually, no, she said, I know. And then, you know, if you're ethically non-monogamous and the person says, I know that you've been seeing other people, shouldn't your next response be, oh, yes, I have been, not, what? 
Well, how do you know that? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a laughing, but oh I said, listen, gosh. when you are around at, on a date with somebody and you find that stuff like in the bin, you don't sit there. This is the polite thing all over again. We sit there, we're all polite. Inside, we're screaming. Inside, we want to mash them up. I'm like, no, you leave. Like you get out of the situation. Yeah, I think I also think that that ethically non-monogamy has been um, now used as a catch-all terms for a bunch of different situations because technically, because with FDS, we would say you should date multiple people at once until you've established a monog- you know, if you want a monogamous relationship, have a monogamous relationship, you could call that dating stage ethical non-monogamy because you're not being, you're not committing to any one person. But when it gets in the hands of how men will take that same concept and be like, no, it means I can sleep around with whoever I want. And also you can't. Right. Like it's usually like that's the arrangement when they mean ethically non-monogamous, which is like that, you know, you'll often see them purport this as saying um, this is like a, a progressive relationship, but it's it's sometimes like de facto polygamy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, and so these buzzwords and these terms hide a great deal of evil. And the the way that they always couch it is like it's gender neutral. But then when you look at the actual practice that men are advocating for, it looks completely different than what they're trying to um, paint it as, as some kind of progressive way to have open and honest relationships. It's just, it's just the practical reality of what they're saying is never living up to the hype. Because it requires men to be more uh, ethical participants. And as we've now maybe seen for hundreds of thousands of years, that's very, very difficult, no matter what framework you put forth. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, in, in, in all of these situations, what you actually find is that there is one person advancing their self-interest and calling it mutual. Exactly. Yes. yes thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it's often and it's often not the woman. Often not the women. Are, the women are going on like that sounds like a good idea. You know, like we this and we're in this. No, no, no. It ain't we. You're advancing your self interest and making out like this is something that we in together. But I actually don't have a say in this. Yes. Oh, yes. And that's like if that's the central message of female dating strategy. It's like we're a strategy for a reason. Because quite frankly, there's so we call ourselves a strategy and not like just some general, I don't know, anything else. But because of the fact that so often people don't see that these other terms are actually strategies that are being purported. They're narratives and strategies for a specific cohort of people to benefit themselves. Uh, absolutely. And, and the thing I say is that people unfold and relationships unfold. And so with the framework that you've described that is, you know, over the, this, this three-month period, you are basically as, as, essentially as, establishing a sense of who are you around this person? Is there something going on here? What do I know about this person so far? And the thing is, is that what people are often trying to do in terms of like dating relationships and sex is they they think that there's like a magic amount of information that they can try and ascertain about somebody, you know, within a few dates where they can unequivocally go, okay, that means that they're this kind of person. We're also like all humans have bias. So even when we claim that we don't have bias, that that's just another bias in and of itself. But there is this Bias taking, dating, I think, is very, very reliant on biases. And so it's like, I don't date this kind of person. I only like this. Bias, 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 bias. And then what happens is we extend automatic trust 
to people who fit our biases, not realizing that we're just walking ourselves into traps over and over and over again. If we don't do things from a place of this sort of uh, instant gratification, and we actually consider, first of all, well, what is our intention here? We recognize whether we have hidden motivations. If we are genuinely looking for a relationship, we can't be working off pure instant gratification because we have to think about the medium to long-term consequences of what we're doing. It's also about as well that if we don't operate on instant gratification, we have to keep our two feet on the ground and actually be present to what is going on. If somebody is whatever shady carry on or whatever it is, that is going to make itself known if we are willing to be listening and watching. But if our head is up our backside or we're too high on sex or whatever else to basically pay any attention whatsoever, then of course, no matter how much time we give it, we're going to allow ourselves to miss a lot of signs. And this is something that, that FDS um, is like really, really big on doing. So we encourage women to vet and we have, you know, green flags. So for example, if a man, for example, you know, the first one might be... If if he pays on a day, if he's considerate, if he texts back in a timely manner, all those things can indicate that he's, you know, a good man. But that doesn't mean that he is. And, you know, we've seen stories, you know, from our readers and on the subreddit where a man will pay for a day and they begin to think that that alone means that he is a good person. And you sort of have to look at it holistically um, as well. So you need to take all his actions in aggregate. It isn't just, you know, one action that makes him a nice person because a lot of, you know, manipulative um for example, men, I think, as I as I like to say, they've started to mutate. They know what attracts women now. They know that <laughs> they're expecting women to see more effort, at least initially as well. This is why a lot of women are bamboozled when the guy who was so nice to them for the first 10 days of the relationship is now a dick six months in. Um, you know, so it's stuff like that as well. So I think that's, that's a really good point to make. You're absolutely right that there, it's important to pay attention to uh, certain things that are taking place, noticing what's consistent or what is inconsistent, but also not going because people will literally be simplistic about it. Well, they bought me dinner, they buy me flowers and they send me a text. So that means that they are a group. And it's like, Lord help. Like, I've no. literally had friends who've said that as well. I'm yeah. just like, Jesus, take the will. It's, it's the bread and butter of it. And then you go, yeah, but the person buys you dinner and, uh, you know, gives you flowers and sends you a text and then disappears and then pops back up in your life three to six months later and does the same thing all over again. And all you're focusing on is, but they buy me dinner and they bought me some flowers and texts. So that means that they're a good man. And I say to people, if you find that when you're dating, it's almost like you've got like, you know, you're almost inventory and things going, okay, well, they replied to the text and they took me out to dinner and they said this and they said that, right? Like you're trying to, it's, you're trying to almost latch onto these things to avoid the vulnerability of actually having to get to know the person in their entirety, like the holistic. And I said to people as well, what people want to do um, early on is ascertain compatibility in the sense of they want to be able to go, they said this, they did that. This means that we share the same values and that we're going to live together happily ever after. And what I've said is it actually all you can ascertain in the early stages of getting to know someone is whether you are 
incompatible because you will see the, what I call the code amber and red, you know, basically the red flags. You will, if you're paying attention to what is going on and you don't gaslight the hell out of yourself, you will notice signs of incompatibility. And if you don't deny and rationalize and minimize and excuse, you will see what's going on. The stuff that you ignore in the early stages of dating, so particularly in those first few days, weeks, and months, is the stuff that always comes back to bite. It's, but it's particularly in those first few days and weeks. And when people actually go back and think about those first encounters, for instance, over text, you know, on a dating app, those first like date or two, often little hints, it's there in the very first date Date two seems to be a particular. So I say to people, you can only assess for incompatibility. And what people do is I get so many messages, oh, uh, and, 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 and it will be like, like over two or three over a period where it starts off with, I've met this amazing person on Hinge, Tinder, Bumble, whatever. And we just have so much in common. We share all the same values and immediately I go, because you cannot possibly know that you share the same values with somebody based on meeting them on some app or one conversation. And then they go on the first date. Oh my gosh. Like they said this. And I just know that we share all the same values. So nice. Blah, 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 blah. And I, and I'm going to myself. Okay. Let's see. And then I hear from them a few days, a week later. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that this was, they said, blah, 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 realized they were a pervert. They were this, they were that. Yeah. You cannot ascertain somebody's actual values in terms of like compatibility from a, a, a photo, from an app, from somebody saying, I go to church or I like this. Anybody can say anything. This is the internet. Oh, don't get me started. Don't get me started on church, guys. Can't tell nothing about a man because he went to church. Uh, you know, <laughs> and this is, if I had a pound for every single per every single woman who had said to me, well, he said he goes to church or that he's Christian or that he's spiritual or that he's a Buddhist or he said he likes animals and children. They are a doctor. They work in the police force, the army. You can't extend automatic trust on those things. Those things don't tell you about whether you're compatible in a relationship and whether they can meet your emotional needs. And most of the horror stories that I hear are from People who say, oh, I'm going out with the guy who everybody loves him at church. He's in the police force. Yeah, it, it doesn't tell you anything about their character either. It's, these are no, all, it and in fact, in fact, um, narcissistic people and manipulative people often hide behind titles and superficial um, markers to hide their worst intentions. So that's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. I also think as well that, you know, I'm writing a book at the moment called The Joy of Saying No. And as I've been sort of gathering my thoughts about why are we so obsessed with people pleasing and being good and avoiding boundaries, part of it has actually come from being socialized and conditioned into illusions of goodness. And historically, status has often been about, oh, look, they go to church. They've got a car on a driveway. That person has this kind of job. That person does this or that. And we're now experiencing the legacy of that, where there's a, so many women got married to, to a guy purely because they're finding, oh, he comes from a good family. He goes to church. He helps out the little old lady down the street. Yeah. And he's got a whole lot of dead bodies down in his basement as well while he's at it. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't mean to laugh at that. I don't know why I laughed, but yeah. But, 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 it's, but it's true because it's, <laughs> it's the absurdity, right? Right. It's like, it's the idea that a guy, I mean, in fact, they've written entire TV shows about this where there's a guy that has like the perfect life on the outside and then secretly. Totally. Like a lot of those crime shows is literally they're interviewing the wife or the girlfriend and she has no clue that there's been a whole lot of dead bodies like downstairs in the basement. Isn't that wild? It is. I, but- I was, I was always joke that if I, if there's ever a serial killer in my city, I hope I live right next door because the neighbors for some reason are always clueless oh yeah right they're always like he seemed like such a nice guy <laughs> you know, the best one is look at this it's called the uh i think it's even if you just watch the trailer of it i think it's called the ted bundy files or the ted bundy tapes on netflix and the one of the women who i guess the newscaster has been interviewing at the time you know back in the 70s or whatever says something like He's good looking. He's smart. He's something of a, are you sure you've got the right guy? So it's like we think predators, people who are not good for relationships only look a certain way. And then when, and, and this is why, and this is where the media have really done a bad job as well. The reporting about like assault, about murdering of like women and children as often leads with the guy. And it, and then there's people going, but he seemed like such a nice guy. He seemed like a real family man. He's killed his flipping wife and family. What are you talking about? That precludes you from being a family man if you, could, if you literally commit familicide. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Well, you and, think. and was it, I cannot remember uh, what city it was in. And I think it was in the UK where a guy murdered his entire family and then the um, police chief came out and said, "We're not. We don't understand what drove him to do this, or like what marital problems they were having, yeah. make, making it seem as if there's just something in a marriage that would justify a man killing his wife and children." Yeah, it's it's absurd. And this, the, the thing is, right? Can't it just be that? This person, actually, you had no idea what it was. And a man can actually want to kill his wife and kids because he wants to have ultimate control over them and is lashing out with all of his anger. And the thing is, as well, people often think, like I say to people, people can be more than one thing. Yes. Yes. I mean, like, you, like yeah. you, you can be like highly, like the best entertainer in the world, super talented, like musically, artistically, and... You could also be a predator. I say this all the time. Like people like to think in really false dichotomies and it's really damaging. Like two like grand statements like you've just pointed out, Natalie, can be true at the same time. I often say this. It doesn't that there isn't there doesn't have to be a choice between two options when it comes to people. It like both statements can be true. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like you can have had great sex with somebody. And they can also not be the right person for you or they can be shady. And like, like our sexual organs are not good judges of character is what I always say. No, they're not. <laughs> so, but we think they are. Very disappointing. Very, very, God, God made a serious design flaw. I just, I want to file a complaint to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I have conversations with people where they're talking to me about all the reasons why they think that this person should want them or why their relationship should be. And I'm going, so let me just get this right. Like, you expected your vagina to pick out this person. Yeah. 
Uh, and on that basis, she will betray you every time. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, we're, we're just far, far too simplistic about dating and relationships because that's 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 what the previous generations did. They, they cared about security. So I, I grew up hearing you need a man for security. At the same time, I also heard that women can have it all. And so I grew up, you know, at a time when we were encouraged, for instance, to go to university and to get the job and to have it all. And also at the same time, we're told you need a man for security and here's 50 ways to please your man. And this is the position of the fortnight and make sure that your man is happy. What about whether I'm happy? Exactly. I don't know why uh, women's media just, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it clearly sells, but I think part of it is just um, creating these insecurities so people keep buying products from them because it's a very lucrative business model. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the very basis uh, of, of advertising where when men are marketed to and sold to, it's you're amazing, buy this and you will be even more amazing. When women are marketed to, you know, and advertised to, it's you're not enough. But if you buy this, maybe you could be one day. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to ask you, Nasty, in your, in your travels with, in, in the dating and relationship world, what would you say the top three uh, biggest mistakes that women make when dating are? Uh, well, at the heart of pretty much all dating issues, which then obviously if it moves on into a relationship, become relationship issues, is speed. So intensity of some form, moving too fast, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, just moving too fast, full stop. And that people play that out in various different disguises or various guises, but that is at the, the heart of it. Another one is this, this auditioning mentality. So I liken it to that famous scene from coming to America where, um, uh, what's this? Is it Prince Asim? Is it Prince Akeem when he Akeem, made that? It, yeah. and, and the woman, uh, who's been picked for him since like, I don't know, she was, since she was tiny. Oh yeah. He makes her like bark like a dog. Yeah, bark like a dog, hop on one leg and bark like a dog and all this. Yeah, that's what a lot of us are doing, right? And so it becomes like, let me, you're going to choose me. You have to pick me. And I now have to just try to display myself as best as possible on these dates so that you see me as future girlfriend or spouse material. And so we do have a term for that, Natalie. It's literally called pick me. Yeah, pick me. <laughs> And it's, and this, this is the X factor or I don't know, American Idol or whatever else, but this is how we carry on. And so it's like, I need to slot into your life and you need to pick me. And there's a very, very different mentality that we have when this is the way that we're approaching things. Cause we don't care about ourselves in that situation. We care about portraying ourselves in a way that we think that the person will be like, Oh, that's so attractive. Let me pick them. And this is how we lose ourselves because they, they don't really get to know us. I think the, you know, and there are a number of things, but I think that it would go back as well. My third thing would be the using, you know, it wouldn't just even just be the sex using sex and just our lack of boundaries in general to generate the O for a relationship. It's like, do you know what? How many ways can I let you screw me? And then you'll be like, oh my gosh, I've been screwing her for just so long. And I've realized it's time for me to cough up a relationship and change. <laughs> no, 
Ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Never happens. <laughs> I mean, it happens, but those relationships are very sad. But you know, it pains me when I hear from people who go, well, I have a friend and like he used to do all these terrible things to her now and they managed to like get engaged and married. Mate, is this what you're aspiring to? Yeah. <laughs> that's always the question because, but well, and that's, that's the, um, frustrating part about the um, push towards marriage when, or at least when marriage being some kind of achievement for women, more so looking at it as a connection between two people who find value in each other, instead of it just being a status symbol. Yeah. A status symbol. And and that's a goal. Right. And um, I don't know. It's something that I think we really got to work to uh, adjust in our culture because again, there's just hasn't, there hasn't been much of a, a, a narrative being pushed the other way. And that's part of why we keep falling into these things. The interesting thing is, is that we do these things and then when things don't work out or when they move on to somebody else, we feel really rejected. But I'm like, you, it's not, you never showed them the real you. So the version of you that got rejected is just some fake ass version of you that got rejected, but you're mad because it's like, but you don't even want the fake version of me. So what would you have done with the real me? But it's like, actually, if what we're genuinely looking for is a mutual relationship, one that has love, care, trust, and respect, and of course the attraction, then we have to reveal our real selves. And in the process of doing that, sometimes we're going to meet people who are like, yeah, you know what? I'll pass. I'm going to go and be ethically non-monogamous, right? We're going to get some people who are going to be like, you know what? I like spending time with you, but I just don't see this going anywhere. But at some point, if that's what we want, we are going to meet somebody who is on the same page as us, but we can't find that person if we're going to pretend to be somebody else. Mm, Yeah. Level up. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta be, and and it's, and it's so true because once you, once you're in that mind space and it's really hard to describe this to people who haven't gotten there, like, and you understand where your boundaries are, your life actually does get a lot easier in some respects, because honestly, part of the pain is just not understanding where all the little nicks and ticks are coming in because you don't have a good understanding of how to put your boundaries in place and like how and who you are. Right. And like what kinds of things you need for your own care and feeding. Yeah. I, I think if you, uh, if you're not saying yes, authentically, you know, and I, when I say saying that could be verbally for your actions, through your inaction, through, you know, what you don't say, then you are saying yes, like resentfully, avoidantly, you know, fearfully. And that is always, always, always going to lead to more problems than if you just turn around and said no in the first place. And I found that my dating experiences and then just my general experiences of relationships are not just like in my relationship with my now husband, but just like friendships, work, family, everybody, everything changed when I started to figure out where I needed to say no. And we, I think, I think particularly as women, we have got this idea that the key to our success is yes, 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 yes. And then we wonder why we're miserable why we have ended up saying yes to what can be some pretty painful stuff. 
But the thing is, is that we actually need to figure out what it is that we say no to, because it is only then that we can say yes authentically and really have a true sense of our boundaries. If we're always shutting down our feelings and pretending something isn't what it is, you know, acting naive and carrying on, letting guys take the piss and step all over us, then of course we can't know our boundaries. But when we're willing to say no in those places where it would be oh so tempting to lie to pretend, to avoid or whatever it is, that's when we have the boundaries. That's when we have the real intimacy going on in our lives. So this is this is kind of an off-topic question. And we were discussing this. Um, so you've worked in the sex and dating space for a very long time. When did you tell guys that you were doing this? Because I... We were t- <laughs> so we were uh we we have a, a spectrum on, on our uh host team and some of us are like nah i don't ever tell them or like don't tell them like well into the to the relationship that you do this or like uh do you tell them right up front so i mean this has gone back a lot i mean the last time i was dating was like uh 2005 early 2006 before i met my now um husband i told him I think it was a second date, but I said to him that we needed, uh, like, if we're going to be obviously seeing each other, I'm going to get to know each other. I don't need you going and trying to read my blog behind my back as a way to try to get to know me. Right. And you know what? He didn't. (laughs) He didn't. Oh. Like, because, uh, because I said otherwise, like, I don't have no blog of yours to go off and read and be like, oh, let me go and do my FBI investigation on you through the, through the blog. So I said, the thing is, is that I need you to get to know me as me rather than you go off and read a blog, form an impression of me and decide who I am. So he didn't. And there was some, uh, I mentioned it to, yeah, definitely had mentioned it to like the, the guy that I was seeing who had a girlfriend. He definitely knew. I had that blog. He didn't like when I was slagging him off on there either. Um, (laughs) And um, I think I mentioned it to another couple of guys. And of course, like, of course, they typically went and sort of looked it up or whatever. But I sort of gave myself creative license to say whatever. I, I, For me, when I, throughout my work, even though I have sometimes got into trouble with like one of my exes found out obviously that I had this blog because a, a woman that I knew through him told him about it. Cause I think I'd been featured in the newspaper and basically my anonymity was gone. And she then also basically we stopped talking because she found out that I was slagging the wine that <laughs> from a party <laughs> that she'd had. So she kind of used that as an opportunity to go back and basically be like, Oh my God, she's been writing on there about like when you two were engaged or whatever. So I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. But I think that, um, obviously I came up at a very, very different time. There wasn't like, there was no such thing as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of these things. And it's very, very easy for people to play Columbo, you know, these days and, you know, do a whole load of searching up. So there's a level of trust. Like, you know, like when I said to my now husband, you know, I need you not to be, you know, going and having a spy around you know, about, about me and get to know me for me. Not everybody can do that though. Um, and so I think that I don't know that you necessarily need to turn around and tell them straight off the bat. I think it's really about when you genuinely feel comfortable disclosing that and where you feel like there's no shame, like where you're saying it without shame. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Because I think if you say it with shame or like, I need you to validate the fact that I'm doing this, it really changes the energy of that 
conversation and you end up almost like apologizing for yourself or be like, Oh yeah, it's like this thing that I have to be like, no, what, what, why would you have to be embarrassed about this? No, I, I totally agree. So L, L was, so there was some discussion we had in our discord about, uh, like the different approaches we had. Cause L was like, Oh, I tell guys right away. I'm a female dating strategist. And she said this on um, one of our podcasts and other people like, don't tell guys. And then Lilith was like, I don't tell people my playbook, like, et cetera, et cetera. I've not told my partner either. Yeah. She's not told her partner. So we were like, I don't know when to bring it up that you're doing sex and dating. Cause it's like, do you want them to have the impression of you before they see your work? But I, I, I see, I absolutely understand what you're saying, Natalie, like do it in a place where you feel like I'm proud of the work I do and it doesn't change, like make you feel like you're apologizing for anything like that. And not that yeah. we feel like we're apologizing. It's just more or less like, yeah, like you said, people, um, form conclusions and stuff draw conclusions right or or if they listen they you know if they listen to your work they know more about you than you know about them exactly and this was exactly what i pointed out to him on the second date i said you go off and if you go off and read this then you're at an advantage and this isn't about like a game playing but i don't have the luxury of of going off and and reading your blog or or whichever else and so it really comes down to like how do you want to get to know me now of course you know people who are you know in the public eye and when they date somebody of course th- that person probably has formed if they know of them has formed some certain perceptions so they you know, they sort of juggle with that, you know, all the time. But I think that this is your work. And of course, you want to feel as if you can talk about your work, but you may find, as I've heard plenty of stories of, that some some guys can't handle the fact that you have like that, that site that you do this type of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. But then so, again, yeah. I also kind of feel like I was sort of on the fence about whether or not I would say something, but because it's like, you know, with FDS with like baggage reclaim, if they're a good person, they wouldn't be offended by it because they know it doesn't apply exactly. to them. Um, you know, the guys who are good people in my life, they're not offended at all by any of the stuff that we say because they know A, it's true, and B, they're not they're not one of them. And you know, we were saying in um like one of our episodes um <laughs> that the reason why a lot of men react badly to FDS is because it isn't that we're wrong. Because they recognize themselves. It's because they recognize themselves. <laughs> we got them all the way pegged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they re- they recognize themselves. Yeah. And they feel the need to get all defensive and stuff. And it's like, mate, if you you're not up to no good then you have nothing to worry about yeah so but yeah um any final words of wisdom from you natalie that you would like to impart to our listeners about relationships or or anything so um like what would your pearl of wisdom be i say this a lot um particularly this would really apply i, I really think to anybody who's listening here because you know they clearly are wanting to move you know beyond dating and progress to you know a mutually fulfilling relationship and i say if you're serious about being in a serious relationship accept no substitutes and what i mean by this is i hear from women who are like, I'm so done with dating. I just want to go on my last first date. I, I just, I'm tired of being with emotionally unavailable men. I'm tired of being with ass clans. I'm just like done, done, done. And I go, great. Then like, they're like, I'm ready for a serious relationship. Next time I hear from them. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I've been like in this casual thing. I'm seeing my shady ex again or whatever else. Now the thing is, is Good old professor life, as I like to call it, does like to put what you say to the test. 
So if you say that you're looking for a serious relationship and then, I don't know, your ex who's always been dicking you around for goodness knows how long comes along and it's like, hey, maybe we should get back together again for the umpteenth time. This is where the rubber hits the road and you get to decide whether what you said is true, whether you really, really actually want to be in a serious relationship and whether you're ready to let go of the relationship that's clearly not right. It might come along in the form of somebody saying, oh, yeah, yeah, let's date. I'm totally looking for a relationship. And then they turn around and go, hmm, yeah, actually, I've just realized I'm not over my ex, right? And in that moment, you have to decide, is my is what I'm doing, is this in alignment with what I say I want? Is this in alignment with my intentions? And these little pop quizzes will pop up. The exes will pop up. The person who totally doesn't want the same thing will pop up. And this is where we get to, no, I don't want to make it into pass or fail, but where we really get to sign up to who we say that we want to be. And so we have to notice where we're contradicting ourselves, because if we really do want to be in a serious relationship, why are we screwing around with some casual thing? Why are we messing around with somebody who's throwing crumbs? Why, why are we like gnawing our nails at somebody treating us like dirt? Like when actually, if what we say is true and we really want that relationship, as hard as it might be in the moment, we have to say goodbye to this relationship because it's literally sat in our relationship parking space. And as long as that's there, we don't have room for a proper loving relationship. Facts. Well said. <laughs> um, and lastly, Natalie, is there anything you want to, do you have anything up? Uh, coming up that you would like our listeners to know about? Well, I run an online course all the time called Break the Cycle. And well, it's actually called Break the Cycle of Emotional Unavailability. And it takes you through a seven-step process, which is really about figuring out what's really been going on behind the scenes that is causing you to be involved with unavailable people so that you can get out of that cycle and move on to something healthier, you know, more available. And so, yeah, that course is on my website. It's at baggagereclaim.co.uk forward slash break the cycle. Um, yeah, I think that that is probably the, mo the most relevant course that I, that I, that I have, you know, for your listeners. And of course, then I've got my book, The Joy of Saying No, that's coming out in just under a year's time, but that's miles away. So yeah, the course. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Natalie, for, um, for talking with us and imparting your pearls of wisdom. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been an absolute, you two are really, really wise. <laughs> like you guys know your stuff. It's been a pleasure like chatting with you guys. We learned from the best. We stand on the shoulders of giants like yourself. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like I've come full, it's almost like I've come full circle because I can remember about like, I think it was around this time last year, I was reading uh, Mr. Unavailable and the fullback girl whilst I was like in the throes of getting ghosted. Like, you know, when they start breadcrumbing, dropping off and I was like reading that in between tears. So it's nice. <laughs> Finally, speak to you and come full circle with that. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You guys are G's, man. You know, I, I love it. So, um, yeah, it's so been an much. absolute pleasure talking. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the episode. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Please check out our website at thefemaledatingstrategy.com where we have a forum you can discuss this week's episode as well as follow us on Twitter at femdatstrat and please support our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. We have bonus episodes every week as well as merchandise and you can also uh, chat one-on-one -on -one with us via the Discord. And for all you ass clowns out there, come reclaim your baggage. Die mad. See you next week. 